All right, well, yes, my name is Billy Gifford. If you don't know me, I'm the executive pastor here on staff. And like Clayton mentioned, if you've missed the church series, I don't know if we've ever done an eight-week-long series. Uh, That's a long one. But you can catch it. You can catch up on YouTube or the podcast or, I don't know, wherever else. Maybe that's it. But so if you notice, the last one on the church series is called The Church Grows. Kind of strategic because it's like a never-ending thing. So it's like the church series continues forever. But the church grows is what I'm going to talk about this morning, and the idea behind it really is simply that as the church and as the people of God, we need to grow up. We need to mature in our walk with the Lord. And so I'm not going to just say grow up. Don't worry. Uh, That wouldn't go well. But if you've ever had a puppy before, if you've ever seen a puppy, uh, which is probably everybody, you would probably agree that when a puppy grows into a dog, it loses something of its cuteness, right? Like, it's kind of a shame. Dogs are great. We all love dogs, you know. But it's not a puppy. Like, everyone agreed that puppies are just different. They're really cute. And it's a shame they grow up and just become dogs, which are great, again, but they're not like cats, cat people. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes we carry that sentiment with our kids, if we have kids, that we just, they're so cute and cuddly, we never want them to grow up. Uh, So we keep pictures of them and just, you know, we watch little videos of when they were younger. Um, The problem is that sometimes we carry this into adulthood where we actually don't want to grow up, where we're content just maybe growing old, like the old saying goes, you know, growing old is mandatory, but growing up is optional. We grow old, we want to grow in the sense of, you know, setting our own path, making our own money, things like that. But when it comes to maturing, that's a question. And so there's only one place that I know of where you don't actually have to grow up. <clears throat> it's a fictional place. It's called Never Neverland. And I, <laughs> I can bet no one's been there. <laughs> so if you're, if you're not Peter Pan and, you know, the Lost Boys, then you're here in real life, in real world, and at some point in time in your Christian life, you'll need to grow up. <clears throat> and the scriptures urge us to grow in our walk with the Lord time and again. There is a time and a place, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Where, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, we have to determine to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. How many have heard that verse before? Christ and Him crucified. I know nothing but that. It's a wonderful verse and it's an excellent starting place. But do we realize, literally just a few verses later in verse 6, Paul says, Yet we do speak wisdom among the mature. We speak wisdom among the mature. So even Paul, later in his ministry, uh, he was thrown into prison, and, and he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says this, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on <clears throat> so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Even Paul, from prison, later in his ministry, said, I need to press on. I need to grow. I need to mature and press on to what Christ has laid hold of in me. And so a mark of life is growth, okay? Growth and life go together. For example, this podium right here is not going to grow, okay? If I try to water it, it's not going to grow. It's just going to spill water. If the the chair you're sitting on won't grow because there's no life in it. Uh, I had a young lady come to me one time and share a story about how she had this plant in her office that she just loved and would water so faithfully because she loved it. And... She was having a conversation with her coworker one day, and the, her coworker 
she was about to go water her plant again. She's like, I, I got to go water my plant. And her coworker was like, what plant? And she said, you know, that the little one that's in my office. And he had to break it to her. That's a fake plant. Uh, so she had been faithfully watering this fake plant for weeks now. And so instead of producing life, it produced mold or something. Mildew, maybe. <clears throat> the point is dead things do not grow. <laughs> and so there are two ways that the church and those who belong to the church must be growing in our walk with the Lord. And to simplify it is this, in quality and in quantity. Quality and quantity. And today I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about quality and then wrap it up with a little bit of quantity. But my goal is that by the end of this message, you'll see the importance of, as a Christian, constantly growing and pressing on maturing in our walk with the Lord as we bring others into that reality. And so to start with the quality, <clears throat> perhaps it's important to define uh, what is high quality. I think we all have an understanding, but just to share a little bit about myself, I, by nature, am not a big spender. I'm pretty frugal. And so if I, 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 you know, my younger days when I was younger, just working, if I ever needed anything, I would just buy the cheapest of that thing. Because I was like, I'm not going to spend money on you name it. So for example, socks. If, if I had to buy socks, I would spend about $1 per sock. Okay? So a 12-pack for 12 bucks, I'll take it. Uh, anything more than that, I'm like, I don't know if it's worth it. It's just a sock, you know, you cover it. So, uh, but once I got married, I would, you know, I'd find myself, my wife would ask me for Christmas, hey, what do you want for Christmas? And, I, you know, again, I'm like, I don't really need much, but I do need some socks because these have holes in them again. So I'd always ask for socks every Christmas, right? Turning into like a quintessential dad, you know? How many dads have asked for socks for Christmas? Be honest. Okay, whatever. <laughs> you have. You will. Okay, so I've asked for socks, and so my wife would go out of her way to buy me some higher quality socks that actually don't wear out. And so I would find myself in the morning when I'm like, I need socks, I'd find those high quality ones because I know, one, they're going to feel nicer, but two, they're going to last. They, they're trustworthy. They're not going to wear out just after a few uses. Um, I know that's a silly example, but high quality is very simply something you can trust, something that will last. And we see in the Old Testament God's heart for this type of follower when we look at the Israelites. So if you remember the story with the Israelites, they were set free from Egypt, right, Pharaoh? They crossed the Red Sea. They're wandering in the wilderness on their way to what's called the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. <clears throat> and so they get to the border, the River Jordan, and they send 12 spies into the land to explore, to see what's there. And so I'll pick it up there in Numbers 13, <clears throat> verse 24. It says this, when they returned from spying out the land, at the end of the 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, <clears throat> we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we, we saw the descendants of Enoch there. And so they summarize it. They say, yes, the land is flowing with milk and honey. It's beautiful. But there are giants, so we can't take it. And they proceed to literally tear their clothes and mourn and weep and wish to go back to Egypt. But Caleb, his response was different. In Numbers 13, verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should, by all means, go up and take possession of it. 
for we will surely overcome it. So what happened next is that God actually got pretty angry with his people. He was not happy with most of their responses. And so he says to Moses in Numbers 14, he says this in verse 24, 23, 22, something. He says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers. Nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. So we see here, and then later in verse 30, he includes Joshua, but we see that God's response was very interesting. Yes, he wanted all the Israelites to inherit this promised land. He's the one who promised it to them. But he didn't care just about the numbers. It wasn't just get every single person into this land. What did he care about? He cared about the quality of followers. That's why he said of, of Caleb, though he had fully followed me. He had a different spirit than the rest. The ten had a spirit of doubt. Yes, God said, I'm going to give you that land. They went, they saw, and they didn't believe him. But Caleb had a spirit of faith that said, yes, I see the giants of the land. I'm not ignoring them. They're real. They're dangerous. But surely we can overcome it by the grace of God. And so what does that look like for us? That when we see a giant in the land, the giant of lust, for example, or of anger, or of pride, or of bitterness, or unforgiveness, or whatever it is, that we say, yes, I know that's a giant in the land, but by the grace of God, I can overcome it. By the grace of God, we can overcome this passivity. You fill in the blank, whatever that giant is. That's the spirit of faith that God was looking for. And so to grow in quality means that we must mature in our faith. We must mature in our walk with the Lord. In Hebrews 5, I'm going to read a passage from Hebrews 5 from the Living Bible. It might be easier to understand, but it kind of sums up this longing of the Spirit of God for the people of God to, to grow. It says this in verse 8. Son, though he was, Jesus, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make, make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of the word of God all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. <clears throat> Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. <clears throat> so to be clear, the writer of Hebrews is laying out what he's calling elementary kindergarten level uh, doctrines of the faith, which were repentance, faith in God, uh, laying on of hands, spiritual gifts, baptisms, the resurrection, and the judgment to come. Okay, there's like six things that he calls milk. Like for us, we look at that and we're like, whoa, that's like graduate level, you know? We don't hear, we're like, that's the milk? What are you talking about? But 
this is like where I, I have a burden on my heart to share. I just, I fear that we as Christians have grown to a certain degree in our life, in our walk with the Lord, and then plateaued. That we've gone up and then just been satisfied, flatlined. And the reason we've done that, I would argue, is because we've compared ourselves with each other. We've looked around our community, maybe, or the different people we hear and intake, and we say, hey, I'm actually doing pretty good. And we don't compare ourselves with the scriptures. We don't compare ourselves with Jesus sometimes. And so we, we compare and we plateau. What would any parent say of a child who made it to the third grade, learned to read, and then stopped? Because they learned to read. Like if a third grader said, hey, I'm actually a pre- pretty good reader. I'm better than you know, my classmates. This is good. And they just stop learning. They stop growing. Ten years goes by. They're still in third grade. They're 20 years old now. <clears throat> they maybe go to fourth grade. Ten more years. They're now 30 in fourth grade. We would all agree, hey, something is not right there. Every parent would be heartbroken and be urging their child to press on. Press on to maturity. It's the same with our physical body. I mean, if your child stopped growing one day, say you have a baby, you would immediately call the doctor because something is wrong. And just to speak very directly, something is wrong in the church at large today because we're not growing as we should be. We're not growing as we should be. And so we're supposed to start off on these foundational doctrines, the milk, because babies need milk. <clears throat> so 1 Peter 2 says it this way. Verse 1 and 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Okay, so milk is for growth. So herein lies the problem, though. There are many Christians who have been Christians for five 10, 15, 20 years, and they're still on milk. That's a strange picture. (laughs) You know, picture a grown man. What are you having for lunch today? Milk? That would be strange. So we must press on from that. The purpose of milk, as we've just read, is that we would grow in respect to salvation, that we would mature so that one day we switch to steamed veggies, then to chicken and then to meat, right? Amen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Do you see this frustration? He's like, oh, like I want to feed you like some meat. But you can't handle it. You're still bickering. You're still jealous. You're still walking in the flesh. Paul was frustrated because he was a good father figure. Like any father would be frustrated. We, we, we must grow. And see, milk takes very little work to take in, meaning you just drink it. You just swallow it. You know, you could do it right now. You probably, I don't know if anyone has a glass of milk, but you could just do it. <laughs> you could chug milk. I don't recommend it, but you could do it. You cannot chug a steak, Okay. Steak's kind of tough. And so what do you have to do? You have to chew it. But you can't chew it once. You have to chew it again and again and again and over and over again until you break it down enough to where you can take it in and it becomes nourishment to your body and gives you protein so you can grow strong. But it requires some chewing. Um, And I would say this chewing is part of growing up. And what I mean by chewing, I, I simply mean this, thinking. 
Just thinking about it, putting your mind to work and reflecting on a message and considering it. That is you chewing it. The trouble is that when we come to church or listen to a message, sometimes uh, we just prefer a good glass of milk, meaning we just want a good swig, something that was like, that was nice, that was a sweet message, and then we move on with our lives unchanged because we're already babies. A glass of milk does not really nourish a grown man. And so we stunt our own growth due to a little bit of mental laziness because we're not willing to dig in for ourselves and and to wrestle with a passage that was kind of hard and you don't really understand it. You're chewing it, though. You, You haven't taken it in yet, but you're chewing it. You're about to. You can't, we can't come <clears throat> to the Bible like we come to the news, where we read a headline, and then a few paragraphs, and then we move on. Yeah. We won't get any goodness out of the Bible that way. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, Paul says this, <clears throat> Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. So in evil, be as innocent as a baby. Be a baby when it comes to evil. Don't mess with it. But then he says, but in your thinking, be mature. Be mature. Back in the 1930s in England, there was a man by the name of Jack who was a very intelligent but very devout atheist. And he became friends with a very intelligent, very devout Christian and began hanging around in a circle of Christians. Um, They all had a love for stories, and so they would hang together. And it wasn't before long before uh, Jack's atheism began to fall apart because he would hear them talk and study different articles and books, and a lot of evidence started to point to the direction that God does does exist and did, in fact, enter human history. And so it wasn't before long before he had to admit that there is a God. But he was not yet convinced (coughs) about Jesus. So one day, him and his buddy were with a group of friends and they were gathered around this idea of sharing stories and they were talking about old myths in history, just old myths. And his friends were saying how Christianity was the one myth of history that was actually true, meaning it actually happened, so therefore it wasn't a myth. And this just got him thinking. And he went home and he wrestled with that thought. I mean, he grappled with it and it was on his way to the zoo with his brother that Jack decided to give his life to Jesus. And he would write this later. He wrote, When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. But when we reached the zoo, I did. I had not exactly spent the journey in thought nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. So this man would go on to become one of the greatest Christian apologists of his day and probably our day as well. He would go on to write incredible books such as Chronicles of Narnia or Screwtape Letters or Mere Christianity. Jack was C.S. Lewis's nickname amongst his friends. Obviously, Jack, (laughs) C.S. Lewis. But we have to do the same, guys. We have to take a passage of Scripture and wrestle with it. We need to do this until we're no longer tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine, like it says in Ephesians 4, till we grasp the truth, truth and have a hold of it just as strong as Jesus himself did. Then we'll be no longer children, as it says. <laughs> tossed around, here, uh, the latest message is your new theology. And now it's this message. Now that's your theology. <laughs> See, the disciples of Jesus had to do this. They were challenged with some meat. In John chapter 6, if you remember, 
there's this giant crowd following Jesus, and he turns to them, and he gives them a very strong message. Meat, you could say. And he forces them to chew over it and think on it. And unfortunately, at the end of that, it says in John 6, he says that many withdrew and no longer walked with him. And it was sad. And this is when he turned to the disciples and said, what about you? You're going to leave me too? <clears throat> and they were kind of honest, like, yeah, what you're doing is pretty hard, but you have the words of eternal life. To whom are we going to go? And so in Jesus' day, there were two types of followers. There was the crowd and then the disciple. And that gap in between is what I would call maturity. The maturing process takes you from the crowd to the disciple. See, Jesus never told us to make converts or to draw a crowd. That's why our mission statement, when you walk in the door and you look to the left on the wall, says to make disciples of Jesus who transform towns and nations. To make disciples. We could not care less about the crowd. However big or small this church gets, doesn't make a difference. Because the crowd, the quality of the crowd is actually kind of low. And we see that in Jesus' day. There were not many expectations on the crowd. They were there because they wanted a blessing. So Jesus blessed them. They got healed. They got delivered from demons. They got fed. <clears throat> they got blessed. And if we come to church, if we come to Jesus just, just for the blessing, we are in the crowd. But what about the disciples? The disciples, yeah, they, they, they partook in the blessings as well. But more than that, they got to partake in his suffering. Meaning when things got hard, the crowd could just peace out. They could just go home because they're just in the crowd. They don't have to go through that. But his disciples, they held on and went through hardships and suffering and endured and therefore matured so much so that they would one day change the world. And so if, again, we can follow, the, we can follow Jesus as a crowd member, just kind of get a blessing, or we can ask the Lord to make us a disciple and to show us that narrow path that leads to life that produces fruit unto eternity. The crowd can attend church and attend even life group and be blessed by the fellowship, blessed by the worship, blessed by the snacks even. Like at life group, I am blessed by the snacks. My life group knows, right? Yeah, popcorn. I'll just make popcorn for the guests. Here you go, guys, and I'm just hoarding it. We can be blessed by all these things, but on Monday and on Tuesday and when we're not around other Christians, there's no one there to pump us up to say, yeah, follow Jesus. We actually have to make a choice of our own accord. And if you've chewed on some solid food, to put the metaphor aside, if you've thought through things, you've developed your mind, you've strengthened your mind, and you've thought about some tough truths, then you're not so nearly at the mercy of your moods and your feelings. Then you're not so up and down and up and down, in with God, out with God, in with God, out with God. Why? Because you've matured. Because you've actually wrestled with these things. So even if you're not feeling it on a Monday morning, you, you go into the office, you're feeling rotten and down, you know that Jesus is alive because you've matured. <clears throat> you've wrestled with that thought. You know that he's with you and that he's coming again. You're so sure of it. And you're so sure of it that your mind can hold your heart when your heart is low to keep it going. But that takes some chewing and takes some maturing. And so Jesus wanted high quality disciples. So much so that he was satisfied when he came to the end of his ministry, three and a half years of ministering, and <clears throat> he prays in John 17, a specific prayer, just simply giving thanks to God the Father for the 11 faithful disciples, for the 11. <clears throat> we would probably see that in this day and age as a ministry fail, 
Like three and a half years, someone support raised. How many, what do you got to show? 11 people. <clears throat> because we're so numbers minded. We're like, 11? That's it? But the quality of these 11 literally changed all of human history. I heard a fable one time uh, about a rabbit and a lion. There was once a rabbit who was having a conversation with a lion, and she was boasting to the lion and saying, last year I had 24 babies. 24. It's a lot. How many babies did you have last year? <clears throat> and the lion replied, well, I only had one baby. But it was a lion. <clears throat> the moral of that story is simply Jesus didn't care about the crowd. It wasn't the numbers. If we're going to go into battle, we don't want 24 bunny rabbits. We want one lion. <laughs> it's not about the numbers, guys. And so when we, when we can go from milk to meat and from the crowd to the disciple, then we can go from there from glory to glory is what the Bible says. In Proverbs 4.18, it says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until the full day. So I hope we can see now that the true Christian is called to be growing in their walk with the Lord. <clears throat> and again, I have seen so many Christians that should be well along their way in their faith, but instead they've not known how to grow. They don't know how to grow. They've not prioritized it. So instead they grow their business. They grow their families. <clears throat> they grow their finances. Even human relationships, they connect. But their walk with the Lord gets neglected. And so how do we grow? How do we grow in respect to salvation? We need meat, yes, but solid food alone doesn't automatic, automatically make you strong. We all know what happens if all we do is eat, okay? You get what I'm saying? We want to grow, but not that way. <clears throat> he who has ears, let him hear. <laughs> so there are two ways I'm going to share of how we can grow. Uh, and the first one is simply by obedience to the word of God. Meaning we can hear, you can hear, you're hearing this message right now. Is it going to grow you? I don't know. It depends. It depends on what we do with it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. It says this, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we see scripture is for these training, correcting, rebuking, all these things, but unto what? So that we would actually apply it to our lives. It's not just so we have it in our head. That doesn't do anything. I mean, it equips you, but now you have to apply it in your life <clears throat> for every good work. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus shares this uh, teaching that will really nail it home for us, I think. Matthew 7, verse 24. He says this. <clears throat> Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it, for it had been founded on the rock. Yet everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. <clears throat> great was its fall. So what do we see? What is the rock? It's not just Jesus, this generic answer. Yeah, Jesus is the answer. But it was obedience to Jesus that was the rock. 
It's not just in hearing it that is the answer, but it's hearing it and acting on it like it says. So I think a lot of us could be fooled by this fact that, you know, I used to think it was about not even hearing it. And so I would hear the word of God myself and I would be excited about it. But I imagine people heard the words of Jesus and they were excited about it. They were jumping up and down. They were the ones on the front line saying, yes, Jesus. But again, that doesn't mean anything. It was, what do you do next? How do you apply it to your life? Are you going to obey? Because if not, it might lead to a great fall. (laughs) So everything that grows goes through what's called growing pains. And so the second point, if the first point is obedience to the word of God, the second point is suffering. How do we grow? Enduring suffering. Enduring through suffering and trials is the exam that'll either graduate you and take you to the next level or hold you back another year. Meaning you've been trained, you've been equipped, now to see if you really got it. James chapter 1, verse 2 says this Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. So we as Christians look at this scripture and we really like that second part. That perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what we want. In fact, it's always a tragedy when we discover we're not perfect, right? Like, what? (laughs) I'm like always right. How did this happen? We like that part. But do we realize that trials and suffering has a monopoly on perfection? Meaning the only, there's a one-way street. There's only one road that leads that way, and it's going through trials. And so what happens is, as Christians, we, we look at this perfect, complete lacking in nothing, and we balance it with enduring through trials. And we say, is it worth it? And we either conclude it's not worth it because, again, we've already said, well, I'm pretty good. I may not be perfect, and we just kind of pass that off as like an unattainable standard. And so we, we just say, I'm good enough. The fact is, you will have trials in life. If no one's told you that as a Christian, here you go. Life is going to be hard. Jesus promised it. He said, you will have tribulations, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So the question is not when, like, if they will come, but how do you use them when they come? Do you waste your trials and just feel sorry for yourself? Or do you hold on to Christ firmly and endure and press through and see that God is using it to perfect you? to mature you. So some say it's not worth it. Others will simply say that they don't know what's going on. Remember, we just read it said, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So they're confused as to what's happening. There's a trial, the lights were on, now they're off. They're like, whoa, what happened? Or like, I had a plan. It was to go from A to B to C to D. And now it just, what happened was I went from A to B to like number 12. Like, whoa, what? And they're so confused as to what's happening in life. Their plan didn't work out. First uh, Peter 3, verse 12 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with the exultation. It's for our testing. It's for our good. And so we will go through trials. Wrestle. Don't give in. Press on. Hold on to Christ. 
and he will mature us. An amazing example of this can be found in nature. You all might have heard this, but gold, for example, something we value as human beings. But gold has to go through many processes before it's pure and worth a lot. And one of the final things it goes through is it's put in a crucible, heated up to about like 1,400 degrees Celsius. And what happens is all the impurities are burned away and it becomes pure gold, which is why it's so valuable. In the same way, we go through trials. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the same with diamonds. It's another thing we value, right? The shiny diamonds. But diamonds, what is a diamond? It's simply just carbon that has been, it's gone through intense heat and pressure on every side. So much so that it gets to the atomic level of carbon and transforms it to a diamond. There's a metaphor, there's a, there's a parable on life there that when we go through hardships, we go through what we would say is the fire. It's used to purify us and to make us more like Christ so that we can finally get to that place of perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Great examples in nature. But I would argue that the greatest example of all of this is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. I read this earlier. I don't know if y'all caught it. There was something I read that was like kind of strange. I'll read it again, see if you catch it. Hebrews 5, verse 8 says this. Although Jesus, he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is an unbelievable verse. Think about it. Chew on it for a second, if you will. Did Jesus Christ, the God-man, have to learn something? It says he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And he had to, having been made perfect. What? This is confusing. We have to agree. There's something there. But we need to chew on it to really bring out the goodness of it. So what, what is he saying? What is the, the author saying in this? You see, in heaven, when Jesus was with the Father, he actually didn't have to obey anyone because he was God. But it's when he subjected himself and made himself a man and, and, and put himself into the limitations of a human man that all of a sudden he found there's desires in him pulling one way and the commandments of God pulling the other. And so now he had to learn because he took on the form of a man, obedience through suffering. And what kind of suffering? The suffering that says, I'm not going to do my own will. I'm going to do the will of the Father. It wasn't just at the very tail end of his life when he was on the cross that he suffered and learned obedience. He was obedient his entire life. So what was it? What was that suffering? It was that when he's being pulled this way, tempted this way. He, he comes face to face with the commandments of God and he has to say, not my will, but yours be done. My will says I want to eat that food. My will says I want to lust after this. My will says I want to burst out in anger, but not my will, yours be done. And there's a suffering that is involved there. <clears throat> and truly, obedience does involve some sort of suffering. So for example, if I told my daughter, <clears throat> who's almost three, eat ice cream, and I handed her an ice cream cone. She would say, yes, sir, and eat it. <clears throat> Did she learn obedience? Is she obedient? I don't know. We don't know. Why? Because we know that she wants to do that thing. 
But if I were to say, let's say she's playing outside and I say, all right, Adeline, it's time to come in. It's nap time. She starts kicking and screaming because she doesn't want to go in. It's that suffering now that she has to conflict with her nature, her will versus mine. And so it's through the suffering of Jesus having his own will that he had to put to death day after day. Like he said to his disciples, if you're going to follow me, you've got to carry your cross daily. Die to yourself daily and follow me. That's the suffering that he learned obedience and was made perfect. He was perfect in the first grade, in the second grade, in the third grade, all the way to his master's degree. <laughs> that, you know, in Hebrews 6, it also says that Christ is our forerunner which maybe we don't understand and I'm not going to get into fully, but I do want to mention it just means he showed us how to do it. So how do we overcome sin? Hebrews 6.20, Christ was our forerunner. We follow him. We do it the very same way he did. He had to relate to the Father the same way we do. <clears throat> okay, to summarize the quality point, and then I'll move on to a brief quantity point. Uh, we as Christians, we must grow up. We need to see the importance of the quality of our hearts and our, our discipleship with Jesus. We need to take the word of God and chew on it until it becomes nourishment to our bodies, to our souls. This is the kind way of saying grow up, right? I was being kind. So when we are going, so to move on to the quantity, when we are growing in our quality, one of the byproducts will be that we will grow in quantity, meaning more people, okay? Now I want to be very clear. <clears throat> quantity is not an indication of quality. Quantity is not an indication of quality. We saw this again in, in John 6. There's a big crowd, but the quality was only a few. But quality does always lead to an increase of quantity, whether that's thousands or one or two. It does increase. And this can be seen really throughout all of history, but specifically starting in the book of Acts. There was 120 uh, faithful followers of Jesus in the upper room, <clears throat> after Jesus ascended to heaven, and it says that the Spirit of God filled them in Acts 2. And they began to speak in tongues, they began to prophesy. And at the end of it, in Acts 2.47, it says, God added to their number daily those who were being saved. There was this increase. So we have to ask ourselves, well, why didn't God just want the 120 to remain that way and faithful and their children faithful and just kind of keep it there? And the simple answer is this, that he just wants a big family. He wants everyone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he doesn't desire that any perish, but all come to repentance. So God's heart is big, and he wants to gather the lost and the broken and the dying into his family. And so the rest of the book of Acts is simply how these high-quality followers of Jesus went out and made disciples and brought others in. <clears throat> And this has been true throughout all of history. Those who have been most transformed by the love of God have shared it with others. And I, and I would say that this, this is something that's just wired into humankind. There's something wired in us that when we experience something good, we want to share it with others. Whether it's a movie, hey, bro, you got to watch this movie. It was awesome. Or a pizza, piece of cake. Dude, you got to try this cake. It's so good. But something in us longs to share goodness with others. Where does that come from? <clears throat> it comes from the Spirit of God, who when we've tasted the goodness of the Lord, can't help but overflow and say, come, come and rest. Come and find rest in Jesus. He's good, and he'll satisfy your soul. Romans 10, 14 through 15, and I'll end here. 
says this, but how shall they ask him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go tell them unless someone sends him? That is what the scriptures are talking about when they say, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace with God and bring glad tidings of good things. In other words, how welcome are those who come preaching God's good news. If we are really growing in our walk with the Lord, part of that will be wanting to bring others in, naturally. Okay, so with that, if y'all would stand, please. I'll wrap it up here. So to summarize, we, we really must see where we are. We need a reality check when it comes to our spiritual maturity and say, and we need to see, okay, Christ has called us to press on to perfection. That, yeah, it it makes sense. If you're in a business, you want to grow the business. If you own a family, you want to grow your kids up. But what about our walk with the Lord? What are we doing there? We must press on to perfection and we must be willing to bring others into that as well. And so what does that mean? Um, Right now, I would want you to ask in, in response, just practically, what must I do to grow up? Just ask the Lord, what, am I, what do I need to do to become strong and mature in my faith? Because too often, I mean, it's kind of like the New Year's resolution thing. We're like, I'm going to work out this year. And then just never do it because you didn't come up with a plan. You didn't stick to it. And so <clears throat> my question to you to ask the Lord would be, Lord, why am I not growing? What's blocking me? What plan can I come up with? What book can I just bite my teeth on? What scriptures should I go over and over and bring some friends in and we just have a discussion about it? Hey, what do you think about this parable? And just go deep and dive deep into the word of God until it nourishes your soul. And the last question I'll answer is this. That's how do I know if I'm growing spiritually? How do I know? And so I'll answer that with the words of C.S. Lewis since we quoted him earlier. In Prince Caspian, Lucy's reunited with Aslan, and this is the interaction. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. See, the church grows, and as we grow, the clearest indication of growth is that you will find Christ looming larger in every area of your life. Whereas before, it was Sunday morning. We give it to Christ. But as you mature, Christ becomes worthy of everything. It may go from worthy of Sunday to worthy of Wednesday now, and then now worthy of Monday night or Monday morning until it becomes everything. He permeates everything to where he's worthy of my talk. He's worthy of my thoughts. He's worthy of my deeds, my motives, my actions, everything is done unto him and his glory. To where there's no distinction between heaven and this life, where it's, it's just kind of blended into one called you, where you're walking in the spirit of God, constantly seeing Christ in everything. Like the Bible says, the pure in heart shall see God. You want to be pure in heart, you've got to see God in everything. And then we'll get to that place where we can finally say, like with the scriptures, Christ has become all in all. That's our end goal. For Christ is all in all. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much. 
Thank you for giving us your spirit. Thank you for giving us your word. Lord, I pray that as you speak to each one of us, that we would respond in faith. Lord, we lift up the name of Jesus. We pray that Jesus would be magnified in this room this morning. Would you help us to grow? Would you help us to mature? Would you show us just the path we must take to press on to perfection and to maturity until we become a mature man in Christ? We need you, Lord, and we confess that without you, we can do nothing. So come and give us grace, Lord, as we journey towards becoming like you every single day. We love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.